something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Minnie, this is such a good idea. I love the questions, and they do draw out a, a frighteningly confessional quality because they're, they're tough ones to grapple with. Are they adapted Proust questions, or is it just the same concept? It was the concept of the Proustian questionnaire, but I needed to modify them because there were other things that I wanted to ask. And good God, there's so much that I want to ask you and talk about. I feel that really specific questions can elicit answers to questions other than the ones asked, if you see what I mean. Absolutely, and you've calibrated these well because they're maddening in various ways and and ones that I hadn't really contemplated in all cases, (laughs) but I'll give it a whirl. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver, and welcome to Mini Questions. I've always loved Proust's questionnaire. It was originally an 18th century parlor game meant to reveal an individual's true nature. But with so many questions, there wasn't really an opportunity to expand on anything. So I took the format of Proust's questionnaire and adapted what I think are seven of the most important questions you could ever ask someone. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that has grown out of a personal disaster? The more people we ask, the more we begin to see what makes us similar and what makes us individual. I've gathered a group of really remarkable people who I'm honoured and humbled to have had a chance to engage with. And today I'm talking to Ronan Farrow. Ronan is an extraordinary polymath. He is a Rhodes Scholar. He has worked for the Obama administration 
and he's been a voice actor in Miyazaki films. As a journalist, he conducted a revelatory investigation into sexual assault against women working in film, and in doing so, he acted as an empowering ally to those women. The work on this investigation also won him a Pulitzer Prize. He has been a speechwriter and advisor, has a JD from Yale Law, a PhD from Oxford, and as I learned in my conversation with him today, he is also a songwriter. His resume speaks to his rigorous intellect and curiosity, and in action, he illuminates stories and ideas that need to be heard, whether he's advocating for the protection of refugees as a political advisor or unmasking insurgents at the US Capitol as an investigative reporter, Ronan tirelessly pursues truth, even if, and oftentimes when, it means speaking that truth to power. I go backwards and forwards on the first question of where and when were you happiest because we're so encouraged to be happy all the time rather than the place that we're headed. I don't think that's fair. Well, not to be terribly pedantic right out of the gate, but, you know, what is happiness is what you come to very quickly in answering this question, or I did anyway. And I also, I found it surprisingly hard to answer by any metric. You know, there are a lot of professional moments of fulfillment that came to mind as obvious answers. Getting a tape of Harvey Weinstein trying to entrap a woman after months and months of trying to get that. Those are obviously moments of fulfillment of a kind. But then I think, was I happy then? Because those high points were also marked by a lot of stress and can also be frankly kind of scary. I mean, I think both on a level that any writer would relate to where you're in the zone crafting a scene, but also you're on a terrifying deadline and it's stressful and you're afraid you're going to fail. And there's a lot riding on it, I think, particularly when it's investigative reporting and in ways that are unique to my kind of work, which is very combative in some ways. And, you know, there are sometimes private investigators hired to follow me around and smear me in various ways. So those moments of fulfillment are often entwined with a lot of anxiety And I don't know if happiness quite captures what those moments are. But I don't think they're mutually exclusive. No, I I agree. Yeah. It is part of the satisfaction of doing an incredibly hard job that is dangerous and frightening at times, but also incredibly necessary. And then that paying off. I think there are ways in which that's a healthy happiness. You know, if you are doing something, whatever your profession is, that uh, you feel is contributing in a positive way to other people's lives, that's a great thing to nurture in yourself. On the other hand, that can take a lot of unhealthy forms. You know, I, I know and really respect a lot of great war reporters who famously do get a high off of being in conflict zones. And you know, during time I've spent in, in some of those types of places, you encounter a lot of those people who are in it maybe for all the right reasons, but also I think you know, if they were to search themselves on a personal level, it's probably not the healthiest thing that they need to be in those high-octane places all the time. So is that happiness or is that kind of getting a certain kind of high again, regardless of how noble the intentions. And we all benefit so richly from people who take those risks. I just know plenty of people who thrive in those settings and do us all a public service. But also, I think it comes from a a place of brokenness in part. You know, I, I don't know that that's anything to be discouraged because we do all benefit so much. You know, the world is a better place for that. But can you box that into a simple term like happiness? I don't know. I know I was going to say maybe happiness expands or retracts according to the person. The intense joy that I felt when I had my son, it's different from the intense joy 
that I felt when I traveled to Cambodia with Oxfam years ago, and there was these blacklisted workers. They'd all been fired from the sweatshops for, you know, not wanting to work for a dollar a day and be able to take bathroom breaks. And they started this factory. And I arrived there on my birthday and they'd made this whole party for me. And I spoke a bit of French, but they were all speaking Khmer. I mean, it was it was one of the most intensely happy experiences of my life, but it was completely different to having my son. And was that happy because you felt you were doing something that mattered, that was in the public interest? Yeah, it was all of these things were wrapped up in one. The idea that these women had started their own factory. It was my birthday that I thought had been lost by traveling to the other side of the world. And the fact that they'd used what little resources they had to make me a cake and decorate the factory. And we were just women not speaking the same language, but celebrating. So it was a convergence of a lot of different kinds of happinesses. That's exactly it. And maybe that's it. It is, it is pluralistic happiness. I also got to thinking in reflecting on this question and how hard it is to answer. I think I allow a lot of very happy moments to be shadowed by anxiety or sadness in a way that I wish weren't the case. You know, simple things like getting recognized by fellow journalists or finally getting that uh, graduate degree after seven years of work. That's gratifying, but also feels more like relief than happiness in the moment. And, and I think I allow those moments to immediately turn to thoughts of not even on a totally conscious level, it's just sort of uh, hovering there. What am I going to do next? How can I be this useful again? Can I match this? You know, all of these okay. kinds of things. So this is this is really interesting because do you think, I'm trying to think of a different word than overachiever because there's, I don't think there's any such thing. There is just doing the things which you feel compelled to do, but you have done an, an enormous amount of things that are big and extraordinary, and you've done them very young. Do you think that because you do so many different things that are big, they're, they're Pulitzer-y and they're New York Bari and they're Magdalen College and they're Rhodes Scholarly and they're advocacy and there's global in the title. Do you think that the bar is set incredibly high for what might be perceived as happiness for you because of how you roll? Yes. And, you know, there are all these studies over the years of people who are happiest and least happy. And of course, it doesn't track to a particular worldview of success that, or commendations that, that you just kind of touched on. You know, I think there are simpler and maybe more essential things to be happy about. And I, I don't know that I'm always the best at being in touch with them. But ultimately, that is what I came down to in deciding how to answer this question. I ultimately came to thinking about really simple pleasures and times and places. You know, the memory came to mind of being a teenager, lying in bed in my childhood home, just crushing a box of mint Milano cookies and playing this game. I, I remember vividly, it was a visual novel on the Nintendo DS called Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, which is a bonkers Japanese courtroom drama. There'll be some tiny segment of your audience that gets that reference. And I I was really content then, I think, in a very kind of quiet, low-key way. And is this too off-color? Also in my teens, you know, making out in a bathroom with a crush during a house party that was at no, Yale that's in school. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Little things like that. And and I, I think I could probably do a better job in my adult life of embracing those small and simple moments. No, you know what? I love that your paradigm runs from busting predators to making out in a bathroom when you're a teenager <laughs> to playing Nintendo DS. Like, I love that paradigm. And it's why you're such an interesting person, because that's where you live. You can't do all three of those things at once, I've found. But uh, there is time enough in life. <laughs> 
to, to multitask. <laughs> yeah, that was that's a very spe- that would be a very specific kind of multitasking. <laughs> it would require a lot um, of just manual dexterity. It would need another. It would need at least two <laughs> yes. more arms. Yes. Yes. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. 
You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. This is a hard question. What is the quality you like least about yourself? I found this much easier to answer because there are so many rich and wonderfully terrible things about me to choose from. (laughs) Lack of punctuality is up there. Not in important professional things, but in most other things, I am always late. And I think that flows from a broader issue. I see this trait in a lot of super ambitious people. You kind of think you can accomplish it all in any amount of time. So it's like, Meeting in 10 minutes? Well, let me start writing the great American novel in those 10 minutes. (laughs) There's a fair amount of perfectionism run amok, I think, in me that that leads to a lot of procrastination. You know, every book that I've done has been a year late. This is obviously nothing new if you talk to any writer, but I've let it get to the point several times in life where it really does threaten to sort of cause real problems. And I think that is an offshoot of that same worldview of like, I can do anything in any amount of time, so I'm going to leave it to later. And also, it's got to be so good, so I'm afraid to start. I think the big one, though, Minnie, as I really thought deeply, sort of what's most consequential, is an inability to be in the moment. I do a lot of songwriting, and it, it really shows up there, especially. I'm used to brute forcing things by overthinking them. And I think that that actually can work well in a writing and a, a particularly a lyrical context. You know, I, I like narrative and character-driven lyrics, and, and that can involve a cerebral approach. But as a performer in particular, it can be a handicap, I think, just even not knowing that much except from afar. You know, just growing up around actors, I see this. You need to be spontaneous and trust yourself to fail and be rough around the edges, and that doesn't come naturally to me. It's why I really respect actors, you know, the the Uta Hagen thing of being present and being just in touch with your emotions in a really raw and unfiltered way. You know, I I don't know about acting specifically. I've I've done a little light voice acting, anime voice acting of all things. I know, and we've both worked with Miyazaki. What a thrill, right? Beyond. I couldn't believe that you worked with his son and with him, and I couldn't believe that you'd done that at all. Like, it was shocking. And amazing to discover that. I mean, it's, you know, a grand statement to say worked with them. I did tiny parts in the American dubs, but I would lick stamps for Studio Ghibli. Their work is so incredible. No, no. I mean, I did the American dubs too on Princess Mononoke, but when he came to the I studio, know. everybody... And you're fabulous in that part. Oh, I love that. But I, I mean, I'm an actor. Like the fact that you, how dare you? How, <laughs> how dare you have gone to Oxford and also done a Miyazaki movie and also won a Pulitzer? Those kinds of little exposures to that sort of performing aside... I would probably have trouble ever delivering a truly great piece of acting because I do think I tend to be too cerebral and in my head too much of the time. And, you know, I could perhaps do things that are technically great, but that next level of transcending technique is a real reach for me. And and I frankly don't know, maybe you have advice on this, how to get past that. Well, I would say as any therapist would advise you. <laughs> awareness is the only place to begin, like as an actor, awareness of like what it is that you're doing wrong. God, I remember I was invited by 
this amazing artistic director called Richard Eyre, who was the, the artistic director of the National Theatre in London. And I was invited to this cabal of actors to, to work on Shakespeare. And, you know, I duly did my my balcony scene. And at the end of it, he was like, great, this is so great because it's so important to see how not to do this scene. It's so important to see how terrible it can be when, you know, all the rules of iambic pentameter are ignored. And I, I was, I was so embarrassed and so crushed. It's devastating. Here's the deal. He was absolutely right. And it forced me to study Shakespeare with 10 times more attention than I had before. So I think awareness of the place mm-hmm. to begin, and you, that mm-hmm. requires humility and it requires acknowledgement. And then you just begin. And I think then desire. If you really, if there was something that you really wanted to do, you would figure it out. You know, I obviously this is most relevant in my life, not because I'm, you know, trying to crack the nut of could I ever theoretically be a great actor, but but because in so many of the things I do, I I do think you need to possess both of those abilities, being able to rigorously overthink everything and be precise and technical, and then also knowing when to let go and just be emotional and honest and in the moment. I mean, I, I think you need that in any profession where you have to communicate, whether it's to an audience, as I sometimes have to, or or in reporting when you're trying to connect with someone and unearth what's going on in a situation. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll take those thoughts to heart. You know, I, I think I sometimes want it too much, you know, the, the quality you described mm. of, do you, do you want it enough? I think sometimes for me that leads to overthinking and not being able to just clear your mind. Oh, well, in that case, you know, I prescribe, I don't know, yoga and a few more milkshakes. <laughs> you know what Great. I, mean? I relax. There, there you go. That'll be $350. <laughs> also a note I will take. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. This is my this is my therapy. You were right. I do need no, therapy. No, no, no. You just I'm need you just need my right kind now. of therapy. You don't need therapy per se. <laughs> I'm fascinated to hear how you answer this. What question would you most like answered? If I could wave a magic wand and answer anything, I would obviously choose the question whose answer would save the most lives. You know, I'd go for something really meaty and high priority. I don't know what the biggest scientific obstacle right now is to better energy storage or curing cancer or developing technological approaches to reversing greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. But I would enlist a lot of experts to try to determine what single answer could help the most people. Now, for something more fun, I know this is random as hell, but... Here's what leapt to mind from my own career. There's this guy, Sandy Berger, who was Bill Clinton's national security advisor, who went into the National Archives while he was Clinton's liaison to the 9-11 Commission, and I'm not kidding, Minnie, stuffed a bunch of sensitive documents down his pants and socks (laughs) and hid some and destroyed others. And because of the record-keeping practices there, we actually never conclusively found out what might have gone missing. And this guy was a constant guest on cable news up until his death a few years back. And to the best of my knowledge, no one ever got a satisfactory answer out of him. No one knew what he stuffed down his knickers. Oh, my God. I mean, I think there was some limited accounting, and he did plead guilty to that charge. But to my knowledge, there's never been a full accounting that we can really trust of what he was up to or why. And I even had him on my cable news show once, and... I was like, I'm going to ask him. I told my colleagues this. And my producer, who was a veteran journalist I really respect, 
and at the time, bear in mind, I was a very young anchor just starting out, said, you absolutely cannot. This is not in the news. That was years ago. This would be an ambush. It would be very rude. There'll be another occasion for that. And I didn't. Oh, no. And then he was completely dead. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. And we never found out what he destroyed or for whom. So after curing cancer or climate change, you I would like to figure out- You want to know what Sandy Berger stuff What down the hell Sandy Berger was up to. Wow. <laughs> I, I go, I really, now I'm going to be thinking about that for days. Okay, so what person, place, or experience most altered your life? I write about this in my book, uh, Catch and Kill. I had pitched a story when I was a TV reporter about the Hollywood casting couch, and I was in a meeting with network executives, some of whom were ultimately involved in trying to shut down this reporting, ironically. But at the time, one of them said in an offhand way, didn't Rose McGowan make an allegation of this kind recently? And, you know, she had spoken without naming her alleged assailant. But that kicked off my digging into this and figuring out that it was Harvey Weinstein and getting a whole lot of people to share their stories about him. Very brave people, and I was very grateful that they did a very, very difficult thing. And that ended up being really significant in, I think, both their lives and my own. It's interesting that it would come out of an apparent lack of support from a network and not wanting to explore a story, but you didn't stop. It forced you to continue looking into that story and then take it elsewhere, which is where we all then got to hear about it. And I've talked a bit and written in that book a bit about how that feels at the time. And I, I think I myself have learned a lesson from that experience. It doesn't, or at least didn't in my case, feel like a triumphal moment of, you know, yes, this is a setback, but I'm going to do the right thing. What it feels like at the time is incredibly shitty and scary, and you don't know whether the truth is ever going to emerge, and you don't know the degree of immolation of your career and whether it'll be worth it. But I think you do invariably in those situations have a little voice saying, you know, well, here's what the right thing is, regardless of what the strategic or savvy thing is. And uh, I think it's good to listen to that. Oh, my God. I mean, it literally created a scaffold to which so many women could tether themselves to, could feel strong. You literally created a framework. I don't know. I've been in this business for a really long time. I work with Harvey. I've watched the goings on and you never, ever, ever felt that you would ever be anything than a voice screaming into a black hole to say anything about any of it. And it just changed. It changed in an instant with Rose's testimony and then with all of the, the women that came forward so bravely. I was going to say, really, you know, that that's on them. It was an honor to be able to do some reporting, to be one of a, a whole community of reporters who, who did important work on those stories. But really, I think it, it comes down to the bravery of those sources. Yeah. They, they did a tough thing, and I think they changed a lot as a result. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. So the pendulum is swinging from the deep to the more delicious. (laughs) What would be your last meal? A lobster. Apparently they used to be larger, Minnie, until overfishing. Poor lobsters. It's a scientifically interesting trait. I, I believe they just continue to get larger and larger until finally the size of the shell can't keep pace with the size of the body and they outgrow their shell and they die. You know, the, the shedding can't keep up. Wow, we got into lobster science very fast here. But the, the point being, I have an annoying, bougie answer to this but question. But you'd like to eat a big lobster. <laughs> I like, I like lobsters. Lobster. They walk. They'll walk an enormous distance in their life. They're the greatest marine hikers. I'm not sure I could eat one. They're beautiful creatures, and I think you have the moral high ground here. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am not 
a vegetarian, <laughs> but I, I am self-aware enough to know that if I were a better person, I would be for a variety of reasons. The carbon footprint and environmental impact of the livestock industry, the the treatment of various types of animals that are food staples. I think it can be problematic and also delicious. I mean, I think that's, a, but by the way, that that might be on my gravestone. Problematic, but also <laughs> delicious. Yes, please. May we all be. I think that there may come a time in life where I have the ethical fortitude to go vegetarian. But in the meantime, I do think it's appropriate to have a degree of cognitive dissonance there to say, okay, the ideal outcome morally is to never harm a living creature in any way. But there are concessions that get made to practicality, and you just have to pick carefully where to make them. I think having consciousness about stuff. Yeah. We can be failing miserably. And like I said earlier, I think having awareness of the faulted nature of being a human being is sometimes the best that you can do. I mean, maybe don't eat lobster every day, but I don't think you are because we're talking about your last meal. So if it's your last meal, I think you're allowed a lobster. To be clear, I don't eat lobster every day. I contemplated something that was more every day, like mashed up cottage cheese and sardines is a staple of mine. I would say I eat that several times a week. Oh God, what (laughs) is that? How did you ever come across... Was that just like opening your fridge and there just being a jar of capers and a couple of canisters of, of film and just go, and some sardines? And <laughs> Not not even. I grew up eating sardines and cottage cheese and thought it was perfectly normal until, you know, I would break out the sardines and cottage cheese like out of my lunchbox in grade school and people would just be horrified. <laughs> <laughs> do you put them on saltines or do you just eat it with the fork? Oh, absolutely not. Just with the spoon. <laughs> Like a delicious fish dairy uh, porridge. (laughs) I'm going to have to make it now, now that you've said it. Give it a whirl. It goes great with with tomatoes and avocado. I mean, it does sound terrible, but it also doesn't (laughs) sound unterrible. I'm going to have to make it. Cottage cheese is weird for me. The whole curd thing of it is odd and kind of bobbly. It has bad mouthfeel, cottage cheese. See, I love that kind of mouthfeel. Wow, we're getting quite quite risque here, Minnie. <laughs> I, I like, uh, not to put too fine a, a point on it, but uh, s- slimy foods. So, so perhaps if I'm either uh, too ethical to eat a lobster by the time I, I uh, shuffle off this mortal coil or, or don't have the resources for a giant lobster, uh, I would go with uh, the simple pleasures of cottage cheese and sardines. You're a very interesting person. God, this is why you're a Rhodes Scholar. I feel like I'm understanding a whole lot more about why I have not achieved what you have is because actually it comes down to liking the bobbly nature of cottage cheese mouthfeel. And that for me now is on a par with studying at Magdalen College in Oxford and working with UNICEF. (laughs) And you might win a Grammy. What a what a trip to be nominated for, for a Grammy! I can't. I just honestly, I my eyes did roll a bit when I saw that. I was like, and he's nominated for a Grammy. Great. Well, I'm so grateful for it because I am a lover of audiobooks. Yeah, me too. A good audiobook is such a beautiful thing. The audiobook that I was nominated for was really a labor of love by a, a wonderful team of of women producers and engineers that put a whole lot of long hours into it. And we worked very hard on getting the music right and getting the performance right. And it's very important to me as a listener when I have those things in place to connect with a story. I love a writer reading their own work. Like I love uh, Donna Tartt's reading of A Secret History. Oh, I haven't listened to that. She's got an odd voice that is a delight, though she's not a trained actor. 
And then other times, a wonderful actor can be the best approach. I don't know if you've done audiobooks, but you should. You have a wonderful voice. I've done bits and pieces. I really like the discipline of it. And also growing up in England, you know, everything was on the radio. There were just so many radio plays. And that was my first experience of theatre, really, was the radio. Anything that Colin Firth reads as an audio recording, I will listen to. And Judy Dench. I mean, those are fabulous choices. That you know who who's great, who I encountered recently is John Malkovich. Does a reading of Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions, and oh, he does. It's such a perfect union of performer and text because Vonnegut is a quirky oddball, and Malkovich reads it in such a frankly insane way. <laughs> and he does a unique thing, which is that Vonnegut illustrated, obviously, some of his books and Breakfast of, of Champions in, in particular has a bunch of little illustrations in the margins. And Malkovich kind of stops and breaks narrator character and as himself describes the illustrations as they no, arise, which is a totally brilliant. novel approach and great. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. Perhaps, uh, perhaps a, a good note to uh, to wind down on. Uh, have you read anything good recently? Or do you have any audiobook recommendations? Oh my gosh! You know what? Actually, I haven't been listening to books. I've been reading them because there's been this time to mm-hmm. actually read, mm-hmm. and it's it's funny. Well, I've that's gone... a pleasure of its own kind. The physical books, I, I love those too. It really is. I've been reading. I've been reading quite a lot of Anita Bruckner. I've been going back to my kind of. The British, the British ladies who I never would have read when I was, I was growing up, and mm. I'll always, um, I, I read Middlemarch again for like the tenth time. Oh, how erudite of you! My no, God, it's you not. Know, I've never it's read just it. gripping. It's gripping, like it's gripping gossip where like nobody's getting naked, but it's super awful. You know, it's it's so shocking. All right, I'm. That sounds up my alley and uh, it's an embarrassing gap in my classic literature knowledge so I am I am gonna read Middlemarch for you oh I'd love that you're like recommend recommending things I mean cottage cheese and sardines and audiobooks I mean you are you know, just think you're like you're my kind of polymath mate I gotta so, say some of my recommendations <laughs> are, are more dubious than others Oh, it is such a pleasure talking to you. I can't even tell you. Thank you a million Such a times. pleasure, Minnie. Thank really you for having is. me. Thank you very much. If you haven't already had your headphones plugged in too much today, I want you to listen to Ronan's audiobook version of Catch and Kill. The story is incredibly powerful and it's important. Plus, as you heard, it was nominated for a Grammy because, I mean, of course it was. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoy. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikado. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day. Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. 
And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.